Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and this week our guest host, Dr. Howard Hoxter, welcomes Dr. Javier Lohr. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology, associate director for clinical sciences at Yale Cancer Center, and an expert in gastrointestinal cancers. Dr. Lohr is Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases and Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Prevention Program at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Howard Hoxter. So, uh, Dr. Lohr, tell us a little bit about how common colon cancer is and, you know, our general approach to diagnosis. Sure. So, Colon cancer is certainly common. It's the second most common cancer for both men and women in the United States. Um, and therefore, it is a common cancer uh, with a caveat that actually over the last few years, we've seen a nice decrease in the incidence of this cancer due to mostly the uh, screening efforts that have been uh, uh, happening in this country. So, um, you know, most people don't like to think about their colons, yet alone the waste products of their colon. But can you tell us, like, what what do we mean by screening? I mean, is it like a rectal examination? Is it, do I have to handle my stool? What? Sure. So um, there are several approaches to uh, colon cancer screening. Uh, basically, the, the important thing to know is that colon cancer is a, is a slow-growing cancer. On average, it seems to take about 10 years from the beginning of a small tiny polyp to a big polyp that grows into finally a, a, a well-developed cancer. So there's a long window of opportunity for us to, uh, while we are uh, uh, screening, to detect those tumors early enough and, uh, and thus, uh, thus decrease the risk of, uh, of uh, colon cancer. There are several approaches to colon cancer screening. The most widespread approach is colonoscopy, uh, at least in this country. There are other, uh, which is basically passing a, a flexible rubber tube with the camera on the tip that we go through around the entire colon. And if we see these polyps that usually are the, the uh, early uh, lesions, we can remove them on the spot with a colonoscope. But there are other options, uh, some of them based on uh, stool tests, and, and some of them are newer than others. And that's uh, an appealing way of uh, screening for individuals who are not interested in, in a more aggressive kind of uh, uh, testing. And, and uh, there are some uh, already some uh, uh, blood tests that have not been that well validated yet, but probably they will get perfected and maybe in the future we'll be able to screen with uh, just a blood test, but this is not uh, primed uh, yet there. So um, I've seen some ads on TV where they have a happy colon and a box that goes off to the laboratory. Uh, what, what are those tests about? Right, so those, those are the, uh, the tests that uh, basically what they do is they have a combination of the old uh, call blood test plus a molecular test. So it's a little bit of an enhanced version of the old uh, uh, stool test with a with the, uh, uh, slightly higher detection rate uh, for, uh, or, uh, for lesions, for particularly for colon cancer and uh, advanced polyps. 
So if I send my stool off to get tested that way, they're going to look for some DNA that falls off these polyps or the colon cancer into the stool, and that would tell us that it's a high likelihood there's a polyp. So after that, I'd still need a colonoscopy, right? Exactly. It's um, more than more than a screening. Probably the, the way to see it will be a pre-screening test because uh, uh, the positive ones will be the ones we will be recommending uh, to do a colonoscopy. The negative ones we will be recommending to repeat that test. In uh, um, right now, every two to three years, maybe one year, depends. It's still unclear. Uh, so. The, we know that colonoscopy really helps reduce the rate of colon cancer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there have been some large studies where people either got colonoscopy or kind of regular other stool testing and so forth that have really showed it can reduce the risk of colon cancer. So I, I like to tell people that it's really important to have these screening tests because colon cancer is largely preventable. I mean, most colon cancers start with a polyp that you can pick up within the first couple of years. So that's the key thing. If you go for screening testing for colon cancer, you should be able to avoid getting colon cancer. And the earlier we find it, the more likely it is to be cured. Uh, at stage one, you know, surgery alone is probably more than 90% effective at curing people from ever having to deal with it again. So that's why we want people to go for these tests, even though it's, you know, it, there are some issues involved with it, like um, preparation for the colonoscopy. So what's involved with that? So basically, uh, truly, uh, in order for a colonoscopy to be successful, and we see all the uh, larger and smaller polyps, the, the colon needs to be clean. And truly, the, the best way to clean a colon is uh, through uh, flashing quite a bit of volume of liquid through it. So that's the preparation. It's about uh, one gallon. And now we're doing it in, in split uh, half and half the day before the procedure and the day of the procedure. But bottom line is we do, have, we do need a lot, a lot of liquid going fast through the colon to clean it up from any particles so we can get to see that colon well uh, and therefore for the test to be really successful. So that's the probably the most annoying part of, uh, of the colonoscopy, the preparation for it. Yeah, the, the last time I went, you know, that's obviously you're spending a little time in the bathroom the night before. But, you know, when I went for the colonoscopy, um, it was, you know, I just went to sleep basically. Right, it's done uh, uh, with either conscious sedation or, uh, or uh, anesthesia. In all cases, uh, uh, it's a pleasant experience once we are there and we pr pretty much don't recall anything. So again, I think the, the hardest part is truly the preparation, not the procedure on its own. So who's supposed to get screening? tests for colon cancer and screening colonoscopies right. today? So in general, um, for um, everyone, uh, colorectal cancer screening is recommended starting at age 50. In, in uh, several societies have also recommended starting at 45 for African Americans because of the 
um, highest incidence of uh, younger individuals diagnosed with colon cancer. And, uh, and uh, so start at age 50 for absolutely everyone, so males, females, and uh, individuals with uh, family history or other circumstances, they may require earlier testing, but that's, uh, that's what we do. We tailor uh, recommendations specifically for these individuals, but in general, overall, for, uh, for individuals who have no family history, age 50 will be the, the age to start uh, 45 for African-Americans. But if your parent had colon cancer or your brother or sister, then we want you to start earlier, like age 40, more or less. Right, yeah. So in general, uh, we start earlier, 40, 45, but if they were early enough, usually we do it 10 years before the diagnosis of that uh, of that uh, family member. So we really look at uh, what happened in the family in terms of deciding when the patients need to get started with the colonoscopy. Well, um, so your particular area that you're the a big expert in uh, relates to inherited problems or, or genetic uh, abnormalities that lead to colon cancer. So what are the common uh, family syndromes and molecular uh, changes or genetic changes that people get that lead to colon cancer? and and what do we see with those families? Right. So um, um, those cases are about, 5% of all colorectal cancers, but again, because colon cancer is that common, there's plenty of those cases too. Uh, in general, we uh, we divide those uh, syndromic cases, which means that uh, individuals have uh, a mutated gene and that's passed generation after generation, and that's a predisposing condition to colon cancer and many other cases other cancers too and, and many other conditions too. In general, we divide them between the ones that cause a lot of polyps and the ones that really don't cause polyps and all they cause is just having the, the development of very fast cancers. Those non-polyp ones, the common one is Lynch syndrome. The most, uh, uh, when it comes to polyposis, ones, ones that we call polyposis because individuals develop a significant number of polyps. We have several of them. The first one, familial adenomatous polyposis, but now we have, over the last few years, we've learned of several more like uh, uh, MAP or MYH-associated polyposis or PPAP, the polymerase proofreading polyposis. So we, over the last few years, we've learned of several more genes and genetic defects that cause, uh, also cause this uh, syndrome. So the menu has grown a little bit. Uh, though again, the, uh, these, the, uh, they are about 5% of all colorectal cancers. So 95% of colon cancer is just not familial sporadic. But the most common one in, in that 5% is Lynch syndrome or what we call HNPCC. So can you tell us a little bit more about the families that have, people who have these things in their families, they tend to know it for the other ones because they're, they cause a lot of problems for many people in the family. But there are, there is some sporadic Lynch syndromes or people who don't really know that they have it, right? Yeah, the, the um, um, you know, in general, the challenge always with uh, these cases where there's no polyposis is that if we don't think and we don't ask about family history, often we miss those. It's much uh, uh, um, when we see cases with polyposis, when we see many polyps, it's hard not to think about cases like this. But in, in non-polyposis cases like Lynch syndrome, 
um, we often just don't spend enough time asking her about family history or we don't uh, really pay enough attention and uh, and we may miss those cases. There are several approaches. One of them is truly making sure that we get good family histories from everyone. And also there are uh, nowadays there's some tumor testing that's done systematically that really helps us pre-screen for individuals with Lynch syndrome, and that's something that's becoming uh, widespread and, and available in many hospitals. So um, when, what are, who, who should kind of be more aware, like if they have, the, ask the question of if there, if there is Lynch syndrome in their family, like what kind of uh, characteristics do the Lynch families have that might raise somebody's awareness that they need to look into this. Sure. So in general, it's families that have several members with uh, cancer, and it's not only colon cancer, but endometrial cancer is very common too. And then also some other types of cancers, ovarian, pancreas cancer. Again, most of these colon cancer syndromes are not truly colon cancer syndromes, are multi-cancer syndromes because they cause uh, they also increase the risk of other types of cancers. So what, really any family with several members with, uh, 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 with uh, different types of cancers, we should just uh, make sure that we're not uh, uh, missing on anything. Some of them would be less likely. Some of them are more likely to be associated with Lynch syndrome. That's why it's important to really pay attention to all the cancers. Some of them often may develop earlier than, than usual, but not all the time. We see lots of syndrome uh, of Lynch syndrome families who don't really develop uh, cancers that early in life, yet they still have many family members with cancers. So if you have multiple cancers in your family in, in more than one generation and some of the people are under 50 or younger, those are the ones that we should be particularly looking into their genetics. Right, those, those are the ones that we should never be missing, uh, but those are not the great majority. We often see uh, uh, families where we don't see that many members or not that young, and, and, and that's also part of where we live right now. Families are much smaller than what they used to be. Therefore, uh, we, the number of cancers may not be that, uh, big, yet there are some uh, uh, cases that should be uh, should make us suspicious. So uh, um, uh, those cases that are uh, that have young individuals, those definitely we should be missing them. But we should always think when we see several uh, cancers in a family, we should always uh, raise the suspicion at least think about it. So and and see if it's a, a consideration for for them to be part of a syndrome. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be over 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Xavier Lohr, and we're discussing screening and prevention for colorectal cancer. So, um, Xavier, I, I think in the first half we talked about screening, uh, that it's important for people. We recommend everybody starts getting screened at age 50. Um, I mean, do you th- how, what percent of colon cancer could, if, if everybody went for colonoscopies, could we really prevent colon cancer entirely? I think some of the uh, studies that they have addressed this and uh, uh, have projected that probably put about 80, 85% of them. Some of them, we're still having a hard time. Uh, there are some cases, for instance, where cancers are, grow from flat from a very flat surface, not like these polyps that we have in mind, these this, this mushrooms that we have in mind. Uh, therefore, some of those are very difficult to uh, to detect. Uh, we also have the colonoscopy is not perfect too. The colon is made of folds, and those folds, and, and the colon keeps moving. So uh, sometimes um, we may miss on, uh, on, uh, on some particularly small uh, polyps, but sometimes even larger ones. So while colonoscopy is the gold standard in terms of uh, visualizing the colon, we do we still have some limitations, and and we have to to uh, assume that that uh, sometimes we may still miss things even with a colonoscopy. Such a good test such as uh, the colonoscopy. So colon cancer is the third most common cancer in the United States today in both men and women. And so I think there are you know, around 60, 70,000 cases a year in the U.S. So we could really get that down to 15,000 probably if everybody got screened appropriately. Yeah, and, and to tell you the truth, if, if we compare with all the other types of cancers, that's, that's probably one of the cancers that's more preventable. Uh, the the opportunity here is great, and and I think that we see clearly the results of that uh, uh, push for screening with the incidence going down every year since the late 1980s, and and more so since the uh, generalization of uh, screening strategies. So certainly, I think it it is a success story. Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, unlike some other cancers where there's still a question if, you know, certain kinds of x-rays, mammography, CAT scans for lungs. I mean, there's a lot not known about how effective screening is for other cancers. We really know that colonoscopies prevent colon cancer from ever forming. And that's because, A, it takes a few years to go from the polyp to the cancer stage, and B, you actually remove the pre-malignant lesion, the, the polyp, when you do the colonoscopy. So you're getting kind of both things at once. And uh, I think that's one of the key things about it. Um, unfortunately, as I said previously, it's a little hard for people to deal with the whole issue of their colons and and cleanouts and things like that. but. But, uh, you know, we, we want to keep working on this and keep making it uh, easier. So what do you see coming along in the way of screening? I mean, are there, you know, 10 years from now, are we still going to be doing the same kind of things for screening? I believe that the um, um, probably we'll have a pre-screening tool that's better than what we have right now. 
and uh, and our first approach probably will be a blood test and uh, for the positive ones that will go with a colonoscopy i would not be surprised so these would be based basically and if we have some pre-malignant uh, uh pre-malignant uh, uh cells that are already developing down there hoping that some of those uh, go to the bloodstream and we are capable to detect those changes and then uh, and then uh, use them as our pre-screening tool. I would think that that's so, something that's reasonable. So that's the, you were kind of relying on the cancer to leak out small pieces of mutant DNA. The problem is it's very small, small quantity, so we need to be able to detect quantities at a lower level than are really applicable today. But we're making a lot of progress in in ways of detecting small amounts of cancer. I mean, we're kind of getting to the point in people who actually have advanced cancer that we can follow DNA changes to understand their response to treatment, but mm-hmm. probably has to be a hundred or a thousand times more sensitive to be a good screening test. Right. I think you're right. I think the challenges are there, but I think that uh, when we see the uh, progress that's been made in terms of uh, availability to detect really tiny amounts uh, of uh, DNA. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll see this and not in a very long time. Well, I guess everybody will be happy to get away from sending their stool to a laboratory, so mm-hmm. that would be a lot better. Um, what about prevention? Do we do we see a role for prevention in, in the way of uh, uh, colon cancer development, ways people who, who are at risk getting taking something so they'll have a lower risk? I think that uh, this is one of the aspects that um, that uh, we'll have to uh, work very hard and, and there's certainly a push, for instance, by the American Cancer Society and all that in in both uh, uh, primary prevention uh, and, and chemo prevention. And when it comes to primary prevention, those are simple things that at the end of the day are not that easy to modify uh, exercise uh, a, a balanced diet uh, uh, absence of uh, toxics like uh, smoking all those seem to really carry a heavy weight in terms of uh, uh, the number of cancers that we develop we just need to compare the incidence of uh, of countries where these uh, are uh, these uh, factors are uh, better checked than uh, here and we see that it actually the incidence goes up in more most places where we start becoming more obese and we exercise less, so so uh, that would take part of uh, that would really help uh, uh, prevent a lot of the cancers. And I think that there's primary prevention is uh, important, and we really have to keep working on that, in, in not only for colon cancer but other cancers. Then we have the other issue, which is the chemo prevention. So wait, so sure. before you know, a few years back, they were saying more fiber in your diet, like the bran muffin for breakfast. That's not part of the thing anymore. Uh, I think that um, um, as you, when we talked about diet, um, um, it is a whole. So if we have more f- uh, fiber, may probably we have less fat because we're not eating more more of everything. So I think it's a matter of uh, truly finding a right balance. And the right balance is not. Um, it's. N- I thought. I think it's nothing really mysterious right now. Less red meat, more fruits, more veggies. All this stuff. It's not only good for colon cancer, for our heart, but also for other cancers. So I think that. Uh, it is really the right mix and exercising more, really being more uh, 
uh, active and, and less sedentary and, and less smoking, all those things, uh, uh, at least from what we know, should have a, a significant impact on, on, uh, on risk down the line. So we really have to make a big effort in trying to really go towards more healthy lifestyles. It seems like exercise is very helpful. We see that it's kind of preventive today in trials with breast cancer, colon cancer a little bit, but there's a big study going on in Canada. And um, for people who have already had a colon cancer removed, uh, in all the trials that have been done to reduce the risk of recurrence, exercise seems to help. So that seems to be a pretty consistent theme if you exercise an hour three times a week. That seems to provide enough. Um, do, do you have any idea what's happening when we do that exercise in these settings? How's that helping prevent these cancers? Um, I, I really don't have uh, uh, good knowledge of what can be happening exactly and what's the mechanism, but certainly uh, there are issues about body fat deposits. There's also this uh, issue about this uh, chronic kind of chronic low-level inflammation sometimes with, that comes with obesity that's associated with less exercise. So uh, so maybe there are several factors, not only one factor, but bottom line, as you were saying, really, uh, it does seem to make a difference even at, at uh, levels in, individual who, in individuals who already develop a cancer. So certainly, we really ha we have a, a big task here to, to really promote healthy lifestyles in order to really prevent cancers in general. Yes, that, that does seem to be a very good strategy. So I, I wanted to go back to a minute for we were talking about genetic syndromes and cancers that run in the family. So the most common colon cancer syndrome is what we call Lynch syndrome or hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, HNPCC. In that syndrome, you inherit a DNA repair defect from a parent. You know, basically, the way I like to tell patients about it is that you have a your spell checker for DNA isn't working right, and you have a lot of misspellings, and so that leads to DNA mutations. Um, we're we're actually screening for that all the time in people who have colon cancer today, right? Yes, absolutely, and that's also made a big difference. Uh, so uh, there is an easy way. So uh, there are several genes that we know are responsible for Lynch syndrome. And all these genes, every gene does produce a protein. So uh, when we have a mutation in any one of these genes, the protein is not produced. And that can be seen very easily through a, a test called immunohistochemistry, a test that's done, uh, these type of tests are done all the time in pathology labs. So um, nowadays, uh, um, through the recommendations of several guidelines, many hospitals, including ours, do uh, uh, colon cancer screening and in many cases, like ours, to endometrial uh, cancer uh, screening cases. So every time that uh, a, a tumor from the colon or endometrium uh, comes to the pathology lab, they run this test. And if they see absence of uh, any one of these proteins, then there's a suspicion for Lynch syndrome. And that's when we uh, uh, undergo evaluation and see if there's actually a mutation underlying that defect. So that's a, that's a good way to really pick up cases that uh, otherwise uh, go missing because of the problem we were saying before that often we don't think about those um, uh, cases. So it's really uh, become a very useful strategy to really identify families with uh, such a condition. 
Right. And, and those of us who actually treat the colon cancers are very interested in this, too, because it looks like that group that has these protein deficiencies, the mismatch repair proteins, they tend to be more treatable with immunotherapy drugs as opposed to chemotherapy drugs. So that's kind of a really interesting emerging story. But for this purpose, anybody who has colon cancer anywhere today at major centers, they, their cancer will get checked for these enzymes. Sometimes they're not inherited. There are some that we call sporadic, but most of the time they are inherited. And that could be seen again in multiple first-degree relatives in, in more than one generation. So if you're young, uh, if you have colon cancer on the right side, you know, near the beginning of the colon or the we call the cecum part of the colon, those are people who tend to have these um, Lynch syndrome tumors um, generally, though not exclusively. But, you know, these are the questions that people need to ask if they fall into those categories, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, in general, for instance, uh, when it comes to uh, the side of the colon where, where uh, colon cancer happens, 70% of the time in, in the sporadic uh, population happens on the left side of the colon, yet in, in Lynch syndrome it's about 50-50, so uh, there's a, a, an important shift towards the right side, the cecal, cecum. Uh, so those are also clues that help us uh, to really uh, assess risk uh, for a, a genetic defect. And if you think that that's what's going on, then we like to refer people to the genetic counselors so they would see people in your area. Uh, and what happens then when they go for genetic counseling? So basically then when patients uh, um, are identified either this way or through family history, um, then um, they are seen in cancer genetics and basically there's a family uh, pedigree that's created with the information of the entire family to really help us assess what's happening. We look at the information on the tumor also, if we have that information too. And if that patient does look suspicious, then uh, we would proceed with genetic testing, which is done through a blood test, sometimes through a saliva test only. And basically that way we can really see if the, uh, if the uh, genetic defect is identified. Uh, if, that, if that is identified, then all family members can be tested for that mutation, which really help us identify who has the predisposition to cancer in that family. So those are the individuals who will be following very closely. Dr. Javier Lohr is Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases and Medical Director of the Colorectal Cancer Prevention Program at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.